Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you that we know that everything that you give us is for our good. Help us to be rejoicing and be glad and that the day you've given us, the blessings you've given us. Father, we most of all want to thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that he became man while remaining God. And he went to the cross and died for our sins and you raised him from the dead on the third day so that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will never perish but has eternal life. Father, today, as we uh, search the scriptures for what you have for us, we just ask the Holy Spirit would help us to understand the principles that are in the word of God that we'll be looking at today. We also pray for the families of, of Lighthouse Bible Church. We pray for all who are a part of our ministry We pray for those who are sick today, for those who are having other difficulties. We pray for our country. We pray and ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Well, good morning again, everybody. You know, I was thinking as we sang those songs this morning that God is amazing. And if you think of all that he created, all the worlds that he created, all the galaxies that he created, Everything here on earth, the power. You know, a lot of people think that uh, mankind has created the ultimate power in, in nuclear weapons. But you know what I was thinking? One star, our sun, is more powerful than a billion of those nuclear weapons. And God has created that and the rest of the heavens. And yet, as the psalmist says, he takes thought of us. If you think about the whole universe, you think about us. Um, because we're made in his image, and, be, and he's willing to send his son in the Godhead, to come to earth and become a man, you know, one of us, one of us, not in sin, but in terms of the size of things. Can you imagine the God of the universe? Think about the size of all the heavens. And then he comes on here and puts himself in one little human body. It's amazing. Why? For us. Die for us. Die for our sins. Was risen on the third day. Man, sometimes you just have to take it in and just give a thought to that. And understand more about who we, who we worship. All right, this morning, uh, we're going to just talk about our missionary this month, Pastor Kingsley Emaniki, emailing him yesterday. I don't, I don't talk to anybody anymore. I just email. seems like that's the way it works. But because um, he was here last, last May, and he's like to come here again this year. When he came, I love this picture. He stood in the parking lot and said, I want a picture with the church in the back. I said, you got it. He's, he has plans for this year. Um, Nigeria, for sure. Zambia also. Oh, yeah, and South Florida. I asked him, I said, where are your trips this year? I meant missionary ones, but he says, Nigeria, Zambia, South Florida. So he's planning to come again. That's exciting. Um, One of the things about our missionaries is we learn geography by understanding where they are. I don't know about you, but I had to look up again where Zambia is. And there there it is. I don't have to look for my clicker. I don't know. It's all right. you can see it. This, this, this green thing is uh, zombie. You can see it's in the southern part of Africa. You can see it's not too far away from South Africa down at the bottom of the Cape. And uh, that's where he was last year. And then up to Nigeria. That's where, that's where he's from. And he's going to help a church out while he goes up there. So please keep him in prayer. And again, uh, Kingsley Amaniki. All right, this morning uh, we're going to talk about something. And it actually came out of last week. You know, sometimes I talk to people... Sometimes they actually listen, too, believe it or not. And I, from talking to people, I, it became clear to me that, um, that the last part of the message last week, I went through fast. 
And I don't think I gave people time to digest it and, and be clear about what the answers were. So I'm going to go back and do that today and then give you some new information to basically to help you understand what does it mean when we talk about the mystery. What does it mean that the mystery was revealed? We're going to go to Ephesians and Colossians and see exactly what that is. And we're going to see how it blows away anything else revealed in the scriptures. And that really that is the perfect. That is the completion of what God wants us to know as the church. All right, this morning, please turn your Bibles to... um, I really do need my clicker. Ah, there it is. It's too late for Zambia, but... I like to use that anyway. Okay, so please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 8. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 8. By the way, we are going to have the Lord's Supper today after service, because it's actually part of service at the end of the, of the, of the message, first Sunday of the month. And don't forget, next Sunday is Outreach Sunday, all right? Next Sunday, January 12th. This Friday, the 10th. We're going to have a youth group event. Please keep that in prayer. If you need a Bible, we have it in the back. You can just raise your hand and we'll get you one. Also ask that you keep the Mershberger family in prayer. Tom is failing. And uh, we don't know much longer we're going to have them. So please keep that whole family in prayer. Tom and Cindy Mershberger. All right, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. By the way, the mistake people make is to read something that was written in the first century and apply it to us. When he says we know in part, he means there in Corinth in the first century. In any event, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Well, last Sunday, we did study this passage, and we worked out answers to two questions, if you recall, One, when it says that knowledge will be done away, prophecy will be done away, we looked at the Greek there and it meant that an outside agent would do it. It's in the passive. Act on and and make done away prophecy and knowledge. The question is when. When would that outside agent do away with the gifts of prophecy and knowledge such that they are no longer operating? That was the first question, when. And the second question, it relates to it, is what? What is the perfect? You know, a lot of, when we read verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And we can see that the perfect relates to the partial. And we can see that the partial, as we'll see in a second, has to do with the gifts of prophecy and knowledge. They're in part. We know in part. We prophecy in part. But when the perfect comes, whatever we were knowing in part and prophesying in part, the perfect will allow us to know fully and understand the whole uh, realm of what God wants the church to understand. At that point, the partial will be done away. And so the question is, what is the perfect? What is the perfect? So again, though, we're going to go back to those two questions today and answer them, hopefully in a clear way and concise way. <clears throat> you know, we were singing this morning about, uh, may it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ears to God. 
Well, guess what? You're not going to get a sweet, sweet sound from this mouth today because I got some, uh, somebody out there gave me a cold. I don't know who it is, but I'm not too happy with you at this point. No, I only can. My son came home from West Point and uh, he had a bad cold. So, All right. So again, let me just say again, what, when would an outside agent, at what point in time would an outside agent do away with the gifts of prophecy and knowledge? When? And then the second one is what? What is the perfect? When it says the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So we know the answer to when has to do with the perfect. And we're going to go through this again today. Um, Again, I threw a lot at you last Sunday, especially at the end. So today we're going to go through that again, and hopefully things will be cleared up for you. All right, verses 9 to 12 of chapter 13 tell us when. When the gifts of prophecy and knowledge would be rendered useless. Verses 9 through 12. Look at verse 9 again. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. It tells us that, it tells us when. It has to do with the perfect. Again, the gifts of knowledge gave the saints part of the whole picture. The gift of prophecy likewise provided part of the new revelation. But they would be done away when the perfect came. And we saw the word for perfect means that which is complete. When that which is complete comes, that which is partial will be done away. Now, what does that mean? It means that that which is complete, the perfect, takes the partial, adds the rest, and now you have a complete picture. Okay. So that gives you the, the nature of the perfect. Okay. It's not an event. It's not a person. It's something that would replace prophecy and knowledge because it's the perfect form of what was imperfect in the sense of partial, partial knowledge, partial prophecy. Again, those were spoken but not written down. Okay, so if you you know it's like the telephone game, you whisper in somebody's ear, and then you go around, and at the end it's completely different. You know, you said the, the Lord is my savior, and at the end it says the elephant is big. You know, it's like how did that happen exactly? So that's not reliable. That's why it's great, by the way, about the Bible. It's all written down, and it's been the same for two thousand years. In any event, they would be done away when the perfect came. The perfect, that which is complete. Finished. That something will be finished, and when that's here, the, the prophecy and knowledge will be done away. Lacking nothing. Complete. When it's perfect, whatever the perfect is, it will lack nothing. It's a thing and not a person. Verse 10, again, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Again, the gifts of prophecy and knowledge are the partial in verse 10. They're, they're the ones that are partial. The gifts reveal part of God's word for the church. Part of it. The Lord had new information. Here's the amazing thing. When you you look at the New Testament epistles, and what Paul says in particular, is that there are new things, new revelations, that have never been revealed before to anybody. They're revealed in the letters of Paul. They have to do with us and Christ. And, he, and so the, the Lord had that information to give to the church. Now, in the first, gen, in the first generation of the church, where 1 Corinthians was written, and early, earlier letters of Paul, they didn't have the complete yet. And so the partial was given to the prophets and the, and the gift of knowledge. And again, it wasn't written down. It was spoken. But the Lord had a body of new information that he wanted to give to the church. It was consisting of mysteries. That's the key word we're going to look at today. Mysteries, you know, and I don't mean a mystery thriller. I don't mean uh, Sherlock Holmes. I don't, not that kind of mystery. We'll see exactly what this mystery is. It was formerly hidden, but it's now brought to light. 
formerly hidden, but now brought to light. That's what the new information was like. Now, when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, there was a piece of the new revelation that was given at that time. But at some future time, after he writes 1 Corinthians, some com- the complete set of the new revelations that the Lord had for the church would be given. When that happens, the gifts of knowledge and prophecy are done away. When that perfect comes, when that complete revelation, notice this, of the mysteries for the church has been revealed, then the gifts of knowledge and prophecy are done away. They're not needed anymore, okay, because there's something better that completes what the, what the prophets and the people with the gift of knowledge started. All right, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Remember, these are analogies. He's saying now the information that we have from the gifts of knowledge and prophecy are kind of like looking into a mirror dimly. You look into a mirror, you see part of what you, what's behind you or part of your face, but you don't see it all. You might say, well, that's not true today. Well, it was true in the first century because their mirrors weren't that great. All right? So they, it's like, most of them were metal. If you ever look at like metal and uh, try to see something through it or reflection, it's always like, uh, it's always distorted. You know, you know, like, so, so he's saying that that's, not, that's, that's what we have now. Okay? We have the gifts of prophecy and knowledge, and that is like seeing in a mirror dimly. But then, and then is when the perfect comes, face to face. In other words, clearly, everything I see. And then he goes, now I know in part. I know part of it now. But then, when the perfect comes, I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. I want you to see that the whole issue is knowing. It's knowing. The perfect has to do with knowing completely, whereas the partial means knowing in part. All right. Now I know in part. The verb for I know is genesco, genosco. Okay, that's the verb for I know. What, what's genosco mean? It means to acquire or possess information about something, some information about it. And that was what happened. When they listened to the prophets, when they listened to the people with the gift of knowledge, they acquired information, information they hadn't known about before. Okay, so that's genesco, genosco. Okay, genosco. I know in part. I know part of the information. I've heard it. I have it. Okay, then it goes on. Then it says, I know in part now, but then I will know fully. What is that word for know fully? Well, it's one word, but it's epigonosco. 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 So the epi goes in front of it, and that changes the meaning. All right? It means to know fully. It means to know fully. It means this. It means to identify new information. Okay, gnosko, you had some information. Now, epigonosko, you have new information, and you put that with what had been previously learned or known. And it means to that, at that point, you really recognize it completely. Remember, face to face, you recognize it, gnosko. So there's two ways in which you can learn and, and understand information. Okay, there's a way in which you just get the information in. So like you might, like you might read um, Psalm 23, All right, now you have the information. But then there's a point in time in which you really open, opened up what, who the shepherd is and what does it mean that he's guiding us to pastors and so forth. And there's a point at which you know it fully. Okay? Often that's because you've, you've seen other information in other places of the Bible and you put that together with what you're trying to learn and then it become, comes alive. Just like we've done that a few times in 1 Corinthians when we've looked at other places in the Bible. When we've looked at, we had an Old Testament scripture that was quoted by Paul. And we go to the Old Testament, 
where that was originally written, and that deepens our understanding. In any event, identify newly acquired information with what had been previously learned or known. You put them together. And then you recognize, you have the complete picture. All right. Now, those are verbs. For those of you that really liked uh, grammar when you were growing up, raise your hand. If you loved grammar in English, raise your hand. Okay, we have two. That's good. So you guys will enjoy this. So we have a verb for know fully. These two, epigonosco, gnesco, they're both verbs. I know something. Okay? Well, it turns out that there are nouns that go along with the verbs. What are they? Gnosis, right? We had gnosco, the verb. Gnosis is the knowledge itself. I know, okay, I know information, all right? So I, I gnosco, gnosis. You know, gnosco is what you're doing, learning, knowing. Gnosis is the knowledge itself. Say, what is it that you learn? Then there's another one, epigonosis, all right? It means, again, the full or complete knowledge. So you have part of the picture, gnosis, you have the full or complete knowledge with epignosis. All right. So anyway, why am I telling you this? Well, because we have two people here that love grammar. I figured I'd give them a chance to enjoy it. No. No, the reason for that is that it turns out the nouns, okay, are the key to understanding that question of when. The question of when. As well as the question of the perfect. You see, sometimes you've got to go to the Greek and you've got to see it and you've got to make the connections. And then when you do, you take that tool. This morning we're going to take the noun epinosis for complete knowledge and we're going to see where Paul uses it. And when we see that, we're going to see something remarkable. All right? When we, we're going to see that. Just a minute. But hang on. Just on, think of that word, epinosis. Okay? And now what, I, what we're going to do, okay, now we have the whole New Testament, right? You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? And then you have Acts, okay? Those books are primarily historic in nature. What happened during Jesus' public ministry? What happened with his death and his resurrection? Acts, what happened right after Jesus ascended? How did God continue to reach out to the Jews while building this new thing, the church, consisting of Jew and Gentile? Okay, that's history. Okay, well, then after that, you have letters, right? Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. You get the idea. Colossians and so forth. Well, those, were, those are in one kind of order. You know, basically, those are in order of how big the book is. Did you know that before? Yeah. Romans is the biggest book that Paul wrote. All right, 1st and 2nd Corinthians are next, if you think, picture it in your head, then Galatians, then Ephesians, then Philippians. So they, they were in order of how big the book was. Okay, well, that's one way to think about it. But what if instead we put them in the chronological order? What if instead we looked at the book of Acts, the history book, and recognized based on lining up the book of Acts with the information in the different letters, and we can pinpoint when? Chronological order. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So hang on to that, or just hang on to epinosis, put it somewhere, write it on your palm if you have to. Remember when you had a test and you didn't quite know all the information and you tried to fool the teacher by having things in your palm and on your sleeve? Well, put epinosis there. I won't, I won't give you an F for doing that, all right? And then we're going to look at, really cool, looking at the, the New Testament epistles, primarily of Paul, writ, uh, in chronological order, when they were written, what was written first, what was written second, and so forth. Well, if you do that, I'm going to show you a picture in a minute. If you put Paul's letters in chronological order, 
Okay, the last that was written during the time period of Acts is the book of Romans. You see, a lot of people think that all the letters were written during the time period of Acts. That's just not the case. If you look at it, the last book that was written in the time covered by Acts, okay, from Pentecost all the way to Paul in Rome in prison, all of those books, okay, the last of those was Romans. All right. There were books that were written after that as well. Okay, well, there are seven that remain after. I'm going to show you a picture in a minute. There are seven letters that were written after the time period of Acts, what we call the prison epistles. There are four of them. Prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Okay, and then you have three what we call pastoral epistles, and that's the books that, letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus. So those seven, the four prison epistles, written by Paul was in prison, three pastoral epistles written to Titus and Timothy. And that package of seven was written after the time period of Acts. Okay, here's the picture. I don't know if you can see all the details of that, but i try to do that. Here's the book of Acts. It goes from chapter 1 to chapter 28. Okay, Paul is in prison. He's actually, this isn't quite accurate. He's in prison. extends out more than this. Okay, so we got that. And then we have Paul in out of prison, in prison, the second time, the, okay, he's going to die the second, put the death the second time. And then you have the church expanding. Okay, so if you look at Paul's epistles to the churches, all right, guess what was written first? Probably too small to read, isn't it? Galatians. Yeah, Galatians was written first. It's the oldest book that Paul wrote. And yet, if you look at if you just go Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians, you might guess, well, it's the fourth one he wrote. No, it's the, it's the very first one. And guess what the next two are? First and second Thessalonians. That's, those two were written after Galatians, but before first or second Corinthians or Romans. In a way, it's kind of almost backwards in terms of the order that's in the book, in the Bible, in the order of chrono, uh, chronological order. All right. Then after, here we have these books. Okay. After those books, we get Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. All right. These are what we call the prison epistles, all right? Really, after the time frame of the book of Acts. Also, all, of, all the pastoral epistles, oh, I forgot Timothy, were written at, after the end of the book of Acts. So I hope when you see that, you can draw a line right here and say, well, these ones were written after the time period of Acts. Here we have the prison epistles, and here we have the three letters to Timothy and Titus. And then we have other things down here which have to do with the other letters, which I'll just refer to briefly today. These are the general epistles, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, Hebrews, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Jude. All right, there'll be a test at the end, so I hope you took all of that in. Main point, draw a line right here. All right, these are the last books that were written in the time period of Acts. Then you have Paul in prison, and he writes these books. We're going to especially look at Ephesians and Colossians today. All right, well, remember that word? What was the word that I told you to write on the palm of your hand? Did anybody do it? Epinosis, right. How, how the heck does epinosis have anything to do with the, with the chronological order of Paul's letters? It seems kind of a strange kind of thing to put together. Well, I agree. Until you look at where epinosis appears in his letters. And it's fascinating. Well, it's fascinating to me. 
Because, you know, all of a sudden you do all this work and it's like, pooh, look at that. That's pretty amazing. Well, it turns out that it's mentioned briefly, used a couple of times in Romans. But then in every other letter after Romans, you find epinosis. You don't find it in Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, or First and Second Corinthians, but you do have it in Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and the four letters to pastors. Isn't that something? What does that tell you? Well, it kind of makes sense. It says, well, there was gnosis that was revealed at this period, but then that epinosis, that full, that complete picture was provided in these letters that Paul wrote after the book of Acts, in Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians especially. Does that make sense? Okay. So you, have, you put it in order. You find out that epinosis is used here and here, but not here. All right. So again, the word epinosis doesn't show up until the book of Romans. Okay. However, it then appears in every book that was written after the time period of Acts. In other words, Ephesians has epinosis. Philippians has epinosis. Colossians has it. Philemon has it. As well as Titus and First and Second Timothy. All written after the book of Acts. All where Paul uses epinosis, doesn't use it in the earlier books. Okay. All right, that's, uh, that's all the really hard stuff you have to digest this morning. I briefly gave it to you last week, but I wanted you to see it in more detail. I wanted you to see the timeline and it slow down a little bit so that you have a chance to see what's related between the Greek word and the chronological order of Paul's letters. Well, it turns out that in those last epistles, those prison epistles, Paul completes his teachings. In other words, there were things that he wrote in the first uh, six letters, but that wasn't everything. That was part of the picture. The grandest, most amazing part of what the picture is that he's going to give when it's complete are in those prison epistles, especially in Ephesians and Colossians. There are things written in Ephesians and Colossians that you will find nowhere else in the Bible prior to when it was written or after they were written. All right, you're going to sit, and I want you to do this morning is that you can hear that and you can say, I sort of get what epinosis is, not really, and I sort of understand that they're written later, there'd be more information. Good enough. But I want you to see what that information is. What is it that's revealed in Ephesians and Colossians that is, that is completing the picture of Revelation for the church? All right. When we get that full knowledge of the mysteries, the mysteries concerning Christ and his body, the church, mysteries, things formerly hidden, now brought to light, those mysteries are revealed in Colossians and Ephesians. The body of Christ, the church, and Christ is the head of the body. When, we, when those, that information is given, now the church knows fully. Knows fully what? Who we are. Who Christ is. How we're related to Christ. The fact that he's in us and we're in him. You won't find those things in the Old Testament. You won't find those things in the Gospels. You won't even find them in First or Second Corinthians or Romans. You'll find them in Ephesians and Colossians. It completes it with some, with some really amazing information so that Paul... When he finished writing, when he's finished writing those epistles, especially Ephesians and Colossians, that's the perfect. That's the perfect. The, per- the perfect is when Paul reveals what he reveals, especially in Ephesians and Colossians, and now you have the complete package of what God wanted to reveal to the church. That's important. 
There are things that he wanted to reveal to the church, the fullness of the times as far as God is concerned. And when that's been revealed, that the perfect has now been given to the church. Now, let's take a look at the perfect in a little more detail today. Fact is that Paul reveals truly amazing things, advanced truths in these later books, especially Ephesians and Colossians. So this morning, I want you to see it. I want you to see what is provided in Ephesians and Colossians that consists of the mysteries, things formerly hidden but now brought to light. What are those things? We're going to go through Ephesians and Colossians and sample what those things are. We're going to see the mysteries. That's the most important thing. Let's begin by Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8. Ephesians 1, 8. It's the same letter where we know that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We wouldn't know that without having the book of Ephesians, would we? Would anybody in the... Would you think Paul and the, and the other apostles had any inkling that there would come a time when God would say to his people, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies? They didn't know that. Okay? Peter didn't know that. Why? Because it wasn't revealed yet. It was revealed when Paul came on the scene. Let's see it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. In all wisdom and insight, he, God, what did he do? He made known to us, us, who's us? The church. He has made known things to the church that he never let anybody else know about. What was it? Notice this. The mystery of his will. I want you to think about that. As members of the church, reading Ephesians and Colossians especially, we, we can see the mystery of his will, God's will. We can see the complete picture of, you know, why did Jesus come? Why did God create the church? What's that all about? Okay, this is revealed in Ephesians. Made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention. We know that God, God's grace is on the scene, which he purposed. God the Father had a purpose, and he put it in Christ, which he purposed in him, Christ. Okay, so what about it? What is this will? What is it that he purposed? Verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable. This is where we are. This is the church. An administration suitable. A time when, when God's people, the church, would be having things that are the, suitable to the fullness of the times. Well, what's suitable to the fullness of the times? I'll tell you what, the fullness of the revelation. So he's saying that he's providing that information so we would understand who we are and that the fullness of the times, the church age, and what does he say about it? Again, something that was never revealed. This wasn't revealed in the Gospels. It wasn't revealed in the book of Acts. It wasn't revealed in Romans or First and Second Corinthians, for that matter, or First and Second Thessalonians. The summing up of all things in Christ. That's God's purpose. That's the mystery of his will that he's now, in the book of Ephesians, revealing to the church for the very first time. In other words, not only did Jesus Christ come, God become man, die for us, and was raised from the dead on the third day, but now Jesus Christ, the God-man in heaven, God the Father, is working all things here to sum everything up in Christ. Everything good. Everything that God's will for his... For his for humans is all of that everything about the universe we're going to see it all sums up to Christ that's amazing that's not you know believe me when when James John was walking with the Lord Jesus Christ they had no inkling of that then as a matter of fact that in addition to what happened was he was here on earth and one day 
God would begin this work, after he's in heaven again, of summing up all things in Christ. Now, don't worry if you can't get your arms around that mentally. I can't either. Okay, that's why it's, it's one of those things that's a mind-blowing experience. You'll have the rest of your life. I mean, we talked about the galaxies and so forth. You know, God, God is going to have his son be the head of all creation. All of it. All that we sang about this morning. So, this is exceeding abundant about any information we've ever had before. Look at Ephesians 1, verse uh, 15. That's wrong up there. I don't know why I put that. I know. Yeah, it should be 15 to 23. In any event, 15. For this reason, give you a moment to get there. Ephesians 1, 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all of the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. What prayers, Paul? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's going to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. We're going to know things about Christ. Well, guess what? When it says the knowledge of him, guess what that Greek word is for knowledge? Written down in your palm. Right. That's epinosis. We see it in the book of Ephesians. Okay. What is it? Epinosis of who? Jesus Christ. In other words, there's going to be information that's going to be now made available through the latter writings of Paul, especially Ephesians and Colossians, that is going to give you things about Christ you never would have known if those books hadn't been written. And by the way, if you think about knowledge, there's no knowledge greater than the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can even come close to having the full knowledge, full information of who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. We'll see more of that in Colossians, by the way. Well, we'll see some of it here too, because verses 18 to 23 reveal and share this full knowledge with us. It's written down now. Look at verse 18. Paul's prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know, it's knowledge, what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? We heard about our inheritance in Romans. Now he's going to talk about Christ's inheritance in us, which is another amazing thing to think about. All right? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Notice that one. The surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. His will will not be deterred. His power is at work in every one of us. He who began a good work will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Nothing can stop the surpassing greatness of God's power. What does that mean? Well, if it means if tomorrow um, there's a terrorist attack in South Florida, but God has plans for you, okay, you're going to get through it fine. Why? Because of the surpassing greatness of the power of God. His will for you is going to be carried out. You see it? So when we, when we understand these things, and we can, we can then plug them into our lives, that changes everything. Wouldn't have known about this if it weren't for the book of Ephesians. Then he goes on. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Notice this. Which he brought about in Christ, as the first one, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Notice that, though. Let's stop there. Notice that the same surpassing greatness of his power toward us 
was power that was first seen in raising Christ from the dead. I want you to make that linkage. You think about the power that raised Christ from the dead? By the way, that power is greater than the Son. It raised somebody from the dead. So it's unheard of that that would occur. That same power is available to us. Amazing. I mean, you know, John and Peter peeked, peeked into the grave and they saw the, the, the grave closed. They knew he'd risen from the dead. But they had no inkling at that point that the, the, the same surpassing power of the greatness that just raised their Lord Jesus Christ would be made available later on to people who would be this mystery, the church. Okay. Twenty one, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's Christ. Verse 22, though, let's continue. He put all things in subjection under his feet. God the Father has put all things in subjection under the feet of the Lord. But notice this part. Once he has that, all right, he is far above all rule and authority and power. He's, every name that is named is underneath him. But why? Because God put it all under his feet. Then what does it say? And then Jesus Christ gave him, Christ, the one who has above all rule and authority and power, the one that we already said everything is being summed up in, the one who has all things in subjection to him under his feet, he gave him to us as our head of all things to the, over all things to the church. What does that mean? We're over all things. Since we're in him and he's over all things, we are too. Now you might say, well, I don't feel like that. Heck, I can't even find the money to pay my mortgage next month. My car's breaking down. People are all around me getting sick. Where's the, how can it possibly be that I'm over all things? Well, you see, that's because we're looking with fleshly eyes. We're not seeing things the way God sees them. We're not, unless we, uh, we can, okay, but so we, we look into this and believe it, now we can start to see it. That things are at work, the spiritual realm about us, that we're getting more and more completed ourselves, Okay, which is also pointed out in the book of Ephesians and Colossians. And there, that, there's real power in that that far exceeds. And God, listen, if you're, I don't know how old you are, I don't really care to know how old you are. But whatever you are, okay, if you're 15, it's been true for 15 years. If you're 85, it's been true for 85 years. Okay, if you're 59 but feel like you're 85, it's, been, it's going to work for you too, right? What do I mean by that? Well, God says, you know, but Jesus said this one time. He says, you know, you guys are all worried about what are you going to wear? What are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? Where are we going to go? What happens if this? What happens if that? And he, what did Jesus say? Stop it. Stop worrying about those things. Think about it. Who's more important to God? That little bird that you heard chirping in the tree today or you? Who's more important? Who's more important? Your lawn? that gets manicured or whatever happens to it, or you. And God said, if I, if Jesus said about God, and he is God too, he says, listen, if that's how your father treats birds and grass, think about how much more he's going to take care of you, of you of little faith. You see, you see the problem with little faith is, is it makes us fearful, doesn't it? If we're spending all our time thinking about, you know, when's my next dollar coming from, Oh, what am I going to have to eat? What happens if this? Is my alarm system strong enough now that they, they can, they can uh, crack it open and see everything about me on that? What is that thing that you're talking to and it buys things and plays your music and then uh, you don't realize that people are listening to you in China at the same time? 
He says, don't worry about any of that stuff. He says, worry about nothing. See, when you do that, now you can understand what Jesus said is, for freedom, I've set you free. Don't be subject to a yoke of slavery any longer. You know, be the people you are. Be victorious. Understand that you're in Christ and he's over everything. Now, he chooses to have us go through things just like God the Father chose to have Jesus Christ go to the cross. Wasn't Jesus Christ still God when he went to the cross? Didn't didn't he say that if I wanted to, I could snap my fingers and I could have angels coming down and taking care of me? Well, it's true too. If, If God so chooses, he can have angels coming and rescuing you. And by the way, I'll bet he has. I bet anybody in this room today can point to a time when you look at what happened and you can say, I have no earthly explanation for that. But that's because it wasn't earthly. You see it? But people can miss out on that their whole life. You know, you have these atheists and people that are trying to argue against God, which is, you know, the more, like those two songs we sang this morning, I'll tell you what, I can't sing those two songs and even give a thought to evolution. I mean, it's ridiculous. But in any event, People go through their lives thinking they descended from apes. That there's no purpose. That it's all going to be blown up by global warming anyway. I mean, think about that. If you really believe that, how would you live your life? I think most of the time you'd be like, I've got to find somebody else to blame. Uh, uh. I, you know, I, I need more money than the next guy. I hate you and you hate me. You know, all those earthly things. Why? Because they don't understand the heavenly things. But you can and should, and it's in the Word of God. It's in Ephesians, it's in Colossians. We are the body of Christ. That is not an analogy. That is a fact. I mean, isn't that amazing? We are the body of Christ. I mean, we get used to it. Oh, yeah, I learned that, and it's positional truth and all that. And that's fine. It's fine to have the information. But what about the epinosis? What about the full and complete understanding and enjoyment and recognition of who we all are? In Christ. Where is body this morning? Think about it. He died and rose again so that we could become his body. And we are. And not only that, but we're the fullness of Christ. Notice verse 23. Well, 22 again. He put all things in subjection under his feet. He gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all and all. You know, people get impressed by... Somebody that is a billionaire or somebody that has all this access to things in life and that they have a full life. Their bucket list is full. They can, they can go on vacation anytime they want. And God looks at that and just laughs. He says, that's not fullness at all. You don't understand. You have the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. And that's what we should be focused on. We have that. We are that. It's an astounding thing. Again, at the risk of repeating myself, this was never told to anybody until it was revealed by Paul. You can go back and look. Look in the Old Testament, all right, to see whether he ever said, this group is the actual body of my son and is the fullness of my son in this world. None of the Psalms say that. None of the prophets say that. None of the Gospels say that. Book of Acts doesn't say that. Early, early writings, Galatians, they don't say it. It's here. This is why I only understand the fullness, the completeness comes in these latter letters. And that's why Paul uses the word of the day. Epinosis. Right. This is exceedingly abundant upon anything that he has ever revealed to us before or since. Think about it. Ephesians 3. Let's keep going to the book of Ephesians. 
Ephesians 3, 1 to 10. By the way, this is the meat of the matter. This is the mystery that he's been building up to. All right? Something new, hidden before, but now revealed. What is it? Let's read it. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner, this is, I call it a prison epistle, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Ooh. Okay. Well, why do I say that? Well, because if you look in the Old Testament, the Gentiles were on the outside looking in. If you look at the Gospels, the Gentiles were on the outside looking in. Remember that woman who wanted to have a healing and Jesus said, uh, you know, I have not come for you. And then she finally says, well, even the dogs eat the scraps off the master's table. Why? Because that's how the Jews saw the Gentiles. They were on the outside. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. Gentiles? Okay. Paul, Peter wouldn't even eat with them until the Lord opened his eyes. You know, slowly in the book of Acts, the, the apostles are starting to see, oh, wait a minute, this is time for the Gentiles too. What does Paul say? The prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me, Paul, for you. What was that? Verse 3. That by revelation, new things that weren't known until God revealed them to Paul, by revelation there was made known to me what is it? The mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight notice into the mystery of Christ. You know, on one level, if somebody came in and said, I have an insight to the mystery of God. And people are saying that all the time out here. These false prophets and these crazy religions and everything. But of course, Paul can back it up. I mean, think about it. Is there anything greater than having insight into the mystery of Christ? Why he came, who he is. Notice, five, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Now, the book of Ephesians was written. To be specific, ah, that means here's the mystery. To be specific, what is the mystery? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made, Paul, a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, according to the working of his power, to me, Paul, the very least of all saints, grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. The un- what do they preach to the Gentiles? The unfathomable riches of Christ, things that were never revealed before, until the church, which is his body, Jew and Gentile together, that, then this is revealed. The mystery, the mystery of Christ. He says, look, Gentiles and Jews are now together. They're fellow heirs. It's not like, the, the, no longer are the Gentiles on the outside looking in. They're in there. They're in the body of Christ. That was astounding. Now, we're used to it. But if you look, at, if you were to read the whole Old Testament and the Gospels and the book of Acts, I'm repeating myself. And then you go through it, and you understand how Jewish-focused and how the Jews were God's chosen people. By the way, they still are. And then all of a sudden, you get into Paul's letters, and now they're they're saying, well, the Gentiles are in there. They're every bit as much into this plan, into this administration, as the Jews. It was blowing people's mind back then, even if it doesn't today. To bring to light what is the... Oh, no, wait, yeah. To bring to light what is the... Here it is, the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things so that the multifaceted wisdom of God made, what's the next may, might, what's the next word? Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might 
now, never before, but now, be made known through the church, even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Wow, wait a minute. Are you telling me that Jesus Christ uh, and the Lord, the God, the Father, put together a body, which is the body of Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles, and revealing mysteries about it, the unfathomable riches of Christ, the mystery of Christ, and to bring the light, the administration. In other words, this is the time period. Like, you know, you have the Carter administration and the Ray administration. Well, now we have the church administration, where we have mysteries revealed to us that has never been revealed before. Okay, why? So that the multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known through the church. And you might say, what? To the world. That's, wouldn't that what you'd be expecting? To the unbelievers? But that's not what it says. What does it say? So that the many, many faceted wisdom of God may, may now be made known through the church, which is his body, the fullness of Christ who fills all in all, made known through the church to who? The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Mark it down. You won't find reference to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places in the Old Testament. You definitely won't find any reference before the book of Ephesians to the fact that God put this church together and he's the bo- we are the body of Christ and through us he would be revealing his wisdom to the powers and authorities. That's unbelievable. I only get used to it, but I want you to think about that. God said, I, here, I'm taking you, taking you, I'm putting you together. Some of you are Gentiles, some of you are Jews. I'll put you together. I'm going to reveal things to you that have never been revealed to anybody before. And because you have those, I'm going to use you to reveal my wisdom, God said, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Wow. Wow. Those are God's enemies. And yet he's using us to preach the wisdom to them. We can't see him. Later on in the book of Ephesians, he'll say, you know what? Forget all this conflict you think you have with people. Your real conflict is with the rules and authorities in the heavenly places. And therefore, you need armor, supernatural spiritual armor to do it. All right. But the main thing he's trying to say here is that Gentiles can know the unfathomable riches of Christ. Same Gentiles who were strangers to the covenants of promise for Israel. The same Gentiles who were not included in Christ's ministry to the lost sheep of Israel. But now, something never before known to anybody has been revealed. And it's this, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. Now, nothing, we just read here, nothing approaching the glory of these revelations that we've seen in Ephesians today about Christ and his church was ever found in anything written before the prison epistles or since then. Nothing. It's, it's the, you know, if you build things up from Romans and pull forth, and then you start to see this. You say, now, now this is really getting to the place. Heavenly things are being revealed to us that have never been revealed before. Put, put it another way, now we have it in all its fullness. The perfect, complete revelation of the mystery is found in Ephesians and Colossians. All right. I think I'm going to stop there so that we can have this Lord's Supper celebration today. I guess I did some more preaching than usual. I only got to page 10. I don't know if you noticed, but I've been on a roll. I've been going through all my pages for the last two months every time. But sometimes you just got to sit back and preach it and enjoy it a little bit. And that's what we did today. All righty. Let's close off the message part of today's service with a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you 
that you have revealed to us, these things that have been part of your plan, part of your purpose since eternity past. In fact, we know that you have, in the book of Ephesians, that you have chosen us from eternity past. An amazing thing to think about. In other words, you had the whole thing planned out. You know everything about it. And at the end, it's all going to be glorifying to your son. And that's the whole purpose. That's why God is doing everything that he's doing. You are, Father. We thank you that you've revealed this to us, especially in the, in the prison epistles of Paul. And we ask this morning, Father, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we would know who it is whose death we're bringing into remembrance. We ask this in Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. At this time, I would like to invite the ushers to come forward and pass out the communion elements today. Hello again. We're going to now bring into remembrance the death of the Lord together. We've been in Ephesians today in chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Let me read it to you. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That, by the way, loving the church and giving himself up for her is the cross. That's the, the death of the Lord. That's what we're bringing into remembrance today. How much he loved us and gave himself up for us. So that, why? Purpose. So that he might sanctify her church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. So he, he, he's died for us, and he washed us clean, and he gives us, to, gives us to him. It's an amazing thing to think about. He might present himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We believers are members of Christ's body. We're called the church, but it's the body of Christ. And he died for us. He died for his body that it might be formed. And, and in Colossians, 2 Corinthians, rather, verse 5, no, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. For the love of Christ controls us now, having concluded this, that one died for all. Jesus Christ died on the cross for all. There's enough redemption and forgiveness in the blood of Christ to cover every human being who ever lived or ever will. Therefore all died, believers. And he died for all. Why? So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see, when we're not preoccupied with the everyday worries of life, we no longer have to live for ourselves. We don't give a thought to ourselves, but instead we live for him. And that's why he died. He died that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. He died and rose again on our behalf. This is what we bring into remembrance each time we gather together as one body to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's a simple, straightforward message. Repeated many times in different ways in the New Testament. As always, though, the challenge is to see how it applies to us. How does this apply to me? How does this apply that he died, gave himself up for us, so that he may present to himself us, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless? How does this church fit into that? How do we participate in the presenting to Christ the church in all her glory? How do we build up the church? What is it that we've been called to do? We, we have to understand that that simple message translates into something. It's something about our lives. We need to see how it applies to us and act the same way. 
We need to once again, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, rightly discern the body of Christ. What does that mean? It means to be, be looking no longer at people as just human beings, but as members of Christ's body, that we all are that. And that carries with it a certain way of interacting with each other. It carries with it a certain amazing gratitude for the Lord when we rightly understand who he's made us to be in the body. But at the end of the day, this is all driven by the love of God. And the love of God was manifested in us, as John says, that God, that God sent his only begotten son into the world. Why? So that we might live, really live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation, the full satisfaction of all God's claims against sinful man for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We have received spiritual gifts, and they're for the common good. The only real measure of a spiritual gift is how much it edifies the church, how much it builds up the church. That's the only true measure of the importance of a spiritual gift. So we're going we're to understand that without love, it's nothing. Whatever spiritual gift you have, if it's not accompanied with love, it's meaningless. So today, we ask the Lord to help us to learn how we ought to edify one another. That's what he died for. He died for us so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who loved us. How are we going to do that? How ought we to build up other people? We're going to, we should ask him to be sent, help us to be sensitive to the needs of others. Again, this is not complicated, but, it, but it, it's something that we have to go back to again and again and again and again so that we more and more and more see our lives lining up with these words, see more and more that we are. God gives us the ability to be sensitive to others. And when he does, that we, it matters. It matters. Help us to exercise our gifts. We should ask him that, but only for the good of others. As Paul says it this way in terms of the cross in his life. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. That old me is gone. The me that I spent all the time worrying about is no more. It's meaningless to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Isn't that something? In other words, when you put away your, your overtly concerned interests of yourself, your own worries, your own fears, your own grudges, all those things. And you realize that that you has been crucified with Christ. Our old man was crucified on the cross. But when you, but you have to live in that. You have to see it. You have to believe it. You have to live that way. And then why? Because at that point, now we can see the other thing, which is that Christ lives in us. It's a miraculous thing. You throw away all that stuff that was never really any good anyway. Never really helped you. And then instead, you, then you realize, wait a minute. There's a new life. I put that away. I have a new life. It's Christ himself in me. And that's a totally different life. And Paul says, that life that I now live in the flesh, I live by one thing. This is the one thing we should live by. And that's faith in the Son of God. Complete trust in him. Every promise that he's made, he's going to come through with us for. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up me. In other words, the proof that he is going to be with you in any situation, 
that he's going to come through for you with the things that you see as impossible, you worry about. By the way, that's nothing compared to our sins and our sinfulness. If he did that, while we were his enemies, if he loved us so much that he gave himself up for us, now that we're in him and he is in us, we have no real worries. The only worries that come is when we forget the truth, the mystery that's been revealed about us. He loved us and he gave himself up for us. And so we live in that love. Or as John puts it, we love because he first loved us. So let's see the love today as we bring it to remembrance the death of the Lord. As Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you, we, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's very significant what we do. It shows us as one body, bringing it to remembrance, the death of the Lord. It's the death so that all could be saved, that none would perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what he's given us here as a way to build ourselves up, focus again on Christ, his magnificence, what he's done for us, his love for us, and proclaim that in what we do here, and as then we carry what we do here out so that we continue to, to have the death of the Lord in evidence in our lives. One big way that happens is when you have a heartbeat for lost people. We understand if Christ died for them, I should at least have a heart for them. And then you'll find out that the Lord will bring you in situations where you'll have opportunity to proclaim good news, the death of the Lord for them, that their sins may be forgiven, the resurrection of Christ, and simple matter of believing in Christ for eternal life. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again today for your son. We thank you that we have the opportunity today to bring into remembrance his death, to bring him into remembrance. We thank you, Father, that all over the New Testament, especially, especially in the epistles, we have mysteries revealed about Christ. We learn things about your son. So that every time we gather together, we have a deeper and deeper love for him. And we just want to thank you for the opportunity this morning. And we ask also, Father, that we would have our minds on the needs of others that we would have our heart open to somebody who's hurting and be sensitive and have our spiritual gifts operate so that others are built up. We ask this in Christ's name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Okay, once again, remember that outreach is next Sunday after service. Remember to keep in prayer our youth group event this Friday, January 10th. We'll gather again next on Thursday at 7 o'clock for our Bible study. And just a reminder that um, our giving policy is real simple, that when you are motivated by the Lord to support the, the ministry of teaching the word 
or, or any other way in which the body works, okay, the Lord will give him resources and understanding to do that. He's freely given to us. We ought to freely to give as well. All right. By the way, I also want to ask you to give us your prayer requests. Okay? I can't believe that nobody hears any prayer requests. That's how, I find that very difficult to believe. Okay? But you know what? Gathering together, as we do on Thursday evenings, all of us praying at the same time, that's pretty powerful stuff. That's really what, 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 what being offered to you. So take us up on it. You know? In the back, you can just write your prayer request down, put it in the box back there. Or if you'd prefer... You can use our website, and you can just type it in. It'll take you about 10 seconds, all right? And that way we'll have that. We'll know what, what, what you want us to pray for. All right, as always, uh, I will be here in front if you have any questions about today's message or anything else. All right, let's close one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you, Father, for the ministry that we have here. We thank you for the giftedness that you've provided to every one of us. And Father, we also pray this morning that, again, that our eyes would be open to what, your, what the death of your son means and how it really means that others are put first in our, in our minds and our hearts, that we're just not totally consumed by our own interests and needs, but rather have space, a lot of space in our heart for others and how they're hurting and what they need. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.